Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. On today's episode of the podcast, we are going to be discussing the Democratic Party Convention of 2020. But of course, before we get into all of that, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Uh, For me, I think over the past week, what's really caught my attention was uh, Boris Johnson having to retreat from his retreat in Scotland. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a picture of him in his big woolly hat. I think they were in a tent in, in somewhere in the Scottish Highlands and someone found it. They leaked it to the mail and uh, it was quoted that Johnson was furious as they had to come back uh, to Westminster. I thought that, that caught my attention. I just found it really funny. I think that cuts to a more kind of serious point as well about politics at the moment, because when people discovered that the prime minister was on holiday and that and then afterwards found out where he was on holiday and it meant that he had to come back home, people were seriously outraged by the fact that he wasn't in Westminster, he wasn't working, kind of he was taking this break away. Um, and there was quite an interesting discussion on Twitter about whether or, whether or not it was right or wrong, kind of Boris Johnson going on holiday. And I'm quite torn over this because there's part of me that thinks that if you are the prime minister and you're running a country of 30 million people, however many people live in the UK, you need to be well rested to be able to do your job properly. That kind of makes sense, whether you're a Premier League footballer, whether you're the prime minister or whether you're kind of writing essays at university. However, on the other hand, you've got a prime minister who has dealt with lots and lots of issues exceptionally badly rose to power saying that he was going to kind of take control of government and kind of lead from the front. And then you have so many examples where he's missed Cobra meetings, he's on holiday, he kind of did this virtuoso disappearing act kind of mid-exam crisis. So uh, there was lots of discussion about that. Nick Bowles has an interesting tweet that basically said, well, he's entitled to a holiday and this is someone who has been exceptionally critical of the Prime Minister. So yeah, that was something that caught my attention too. Um, the other thing on that that I find interesting as well is we've had weeks and weeks and weeks, and I said this to you um, privately yesterday, Zach, of really negative coverage of the government, both by The Sun, um, which I don't read, but I see the headlines, and another paper I don't read, but like The Telegraph as well. Um, mm-hmm. Shifting in the way that kind of the right wing or typically right wing media are reporting on the government. And what has struck me is the fact that the government hasn't really moved that far in the polls. The government is still kind of has a lead, although it is is receding kind of as we go forwards. And it just made me think about how important the media is at influencing public opinion, because in an age where we have been trained by politicians, much like the president of the United States, not to trust the media, people are starting to move away from kind of that idea that they're influenced by the media. They kind of have a different perspective on those issues. So I thought, again, that was something to take note of. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the problem with social media and the media these days is it's not like how it was in the 90s and probably in the early noughties where a paper endorsement would probably seal an election straight away. Whereas now I think you've got papers who basically preach the converted. For example, I think The Guardian, particularly a left-leaning paper, people who read The Guardian when the Guardian endorsed, for example, Labour at an election, they're not, not going to vote Labour. Whereas you've got other papers, it's more in the middle ground, which could have some influence. But even then, I think people these days want to read kind of what they want to read rather than having to read certain things. 
and that's not a bad thing, of course, but I think it just shows you, I think, how elections in the future may be thought that perhaps the battle might have to go beyond social media, that it might have to go back to the traditional John Major style of campaigning where you're on your soapbox and you just talk to people rather than trying to use the media when, you know, voters who already vote for a party who read a party's essentially, you know, broadcasting arm, for example, the Telegraph, they're not going to be particularly swayed. So you might have to get more personal with them in the uh, in the campaigning in the on the campaign trail. For sure. And that's that I think is something I agree with as well. It's just a case of people now have everything on demand and of course this podcast is a symptom of that. You can listen to the podcast whenever you like on whichever platform you like and you kind of stream it as you please. And again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast over recent weeks. And because people can can receive the content they want whenever they like, they can listen to it however they like, it means that they can also get the information kind of in a in a format or with a skew or bias, depending on how we want to frame this kind of thing, that they like. So of course kind of the commercialization of news and of information is changing the way that we look at the world. And of course, today's episode of the podcast is currently being recorded on Monday the twenty fourth of August at half past two. So if anything changes between now and when the podcast is released or when you hear this, that will be why. But of course something that major happened last week was the twenty twenty Democratic Party convention. You had a range of speakers kind of talking about the Democratic ticket, what a Joe Biden presidency would mean to the country, and of course, what defeating Donald Trump would mean for you, for the United States. Before we get into our first kind of segment of the show, Zach, what struck you kind of at large about the convention? I think for me, it has to be Michelle Obama's speech. I thought I listened to that, I think it was about three in the morning. And it's the kind of thing you watch, if if it's on, I think it was on Twitter. So you could kind of reduce the window and it'd just be playing in the background while you're scrolling. And the way that Michelle Obama spoke with such passion and such intelligence and such temerity, it it was the kind of speech that made you sit up. It was like, oh, hang on a minute. She's really making sense. Like This is a really heartfelt plea. And I think that was probably the most eye-catching, the most, probably the highlight of the conference. I think it was a a really, really good speech. We know that the Obamas are always very good at public speaking. And I can just think that as part of the, um, of the Democratic Convention, this was about getting people to vote more, just to vote themselves rather than to vote for the Democrats. We know, I think as we go along in the podcast and in the podcast to come, that in, in America, turnout is going to be a really hotly contested debate about how people vote and whether or not they vote at all. And for Michelle Obama to really put it on the line, to say, look, this is a now or never election. This is not an election where you vote for your third candidate, you know, or just an abstract candidate. I think back in 2016, I remember on Twitter, a load of people were voting whoever they wanted, like for example, Paris Hilton and Harambe, it's like that kind of ridiculous voting that in the swing states eventually would decide decide the election for Trump and the same danger could happen again. We know that Kanye West is running for, for presidency, whether or not that 
follows through right until November is something still to be seen. But in terms of it's either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, Michelle Obama got it, I think, perfectly spot on, especially in the tone that she was speaking. She condemned Donald Trump, the president, and Donald Trump, the person, but endorsed Joe Biden, not just as a president, but as a person. And I felt that that was really, really good. The Democrats are going to go with this dichotomy. They're going to go good versus evil, and they're trying to play the role as the good guys. And what struck me as well is the fact that in Joe Biden's acceptance speech, he was talking in very populist terms about Mm. representing the people and kind of this kind of opaque group about what the people is, is of course something that's a political issue in itself. But it was really interesting to see the Democrats going down that approach because it's something that Donald Trump has been doing for the past four years. He's been talking about how the media are the enemy of the people, only he can be reliable and he is the right person for the job. So yeah, there's some of the things that stood out to me. However, in a midfield politics first, we're going to hand you over to Bernie Sanders for some highlights from his speech on day one of the Democratic Convention. Our campaign ended several months ago, but our movement continues and is getting stronger every day. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical are now mainstream. But let us be clear, if Donald Trump is reelected, all the progress we have made will be in jeopardy. During this president's term, the unthinkable has become normal. He has tried to prevent people from voting, undermine the U.S. Postal Service, deployed the military and federal agents against peaceful protesters, threatened to delay the election, and suggested that he will not leave office if he loses. This is not normal, and we must never treat it like it is. His actions fanned this pandemic, resulting in over 170,000 deaths and a nation still unprepared to protect its people. Together, we must build a nation that is more equitable, more compassionate, and more inclusive. So we had Senator Bernie Sanders there talking about the need to create a more inclusive America, a more kind of united America. And the thing that really stuck out to me with this clip in particular, Zach, was this emphasis from Bernie Sanders, especially, that Joe Biden is left-wing enough that Joe Biden had adopted these policies that would kind of help to oversee the completion or the advancement of kind of the left-wing project that people and kind of his allies of Bernie Sanders have been trying to kind of create over recent years. What did you make of the suggestion from Sanders? I thought it was quite striking when he said the ideas that were once seen as radical and now seen as mainstream. Now, you can read that in two different ways. You can first of all say that Joe Biden is adopting very progressive policies. He's actually kind of abolishing this myth of Joe Biden being this rather kind of uh, vague-minded, distant, and more of a uh, continuity candidate that many people thought Hillary Clinton was back in 2016. But at the same time, I think if you're part of the Republican campaign, you can kind of see where the attack's going to come from, where you can say that Biden could in fact be a Trojan horse for the supposed, you know, the radical left 
ideas to go into mainstream politics, but also mainstream government. So it's going to be kind of this trade-off, I think, for the Democrats. It's going to be a bit of a headache, I think, for them in the campaign, because if Donald Trump says that Joe Biden is massively influenced by quite prominent left-wing figures in the party, but, for example, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, then I feel that the innate fear of socialism in America and the innate kind of scepticism of socialism may kind of bring out Republican voters to the polls in a way that they need to in the swing states such as Florida, such as Pennsylvania. But it's, like I say, it can be read in two ways. And I think the more positive slant that it's progressive, it's kind of seeing that the country needs whole-scale change, that the country can't go on as a continuity government in 2020 to 2024. Therefore, it does need radical change. It does need progressive policies. And for Joe Biden, of all people, that people do not see as a progressive candidate at all to adopt policies such as the $15 an hour minimum wage is a big step, I think, for the Democrats and a big step for Biden. I agree. And... The thing that was so important with this convention and something that AOC touched on on social media as well, the target of of what we've seen throughout kind of last week were people who voted for Trump last time or people who didn't turn out last time. They're, they're trying to target people who feel uncomfortable, essentially, with people like Bernie Sanders' policies. They don't they, they are they are afraid of the quote unquote radical left. So you have someone like Bernie Sanders speak at the convention and talk about how Joe Biden is going to implement some of the some of his policies. And this is what you achieve. You achieve kind of party unity. You create the sense that AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren are all fighting on the same side. They're trying to bring out that turnout from the party base that they know will vote for the Democrats if they're going to vote. But the other thing that this convention was really, really trying to achieve was to get voters back from Trump. And so yeah. you saw kind of in other speeches from kind of less quote unquote radical politicians, this idea that Joe Biden isn't that left wing at all. He's left wing enough for the left wing people in the Democrats to warrant them voting, but he's not too left wing to stop people swinging from the Republicans to the Democrats. And I think what Bernie Sanders' speech captured was this idea that Joe Biden would be something to everyone. He would be everyone's president, that he'd be able to deliver the policies that people on the left wanted to see, and he'd basically be able to bring America back to a sense of equilibrium. And I got this impression that the election of Joe Biden is less about kind of a vision of America than it is simply reversing what Donald Trump has done to America in the eyes of kind of Democrats. And that creates quite a compelling message. And what we saw as well was lots of testimonials about how Joe Biden had overcome kind of personal personal adversity and these kind of things. You see this image that policy isn't really that important in this election. It's more about individuals and it's more about this idea of normative values. It's about what is right and what is wrong. And the Democrats are so, so desperate to win the battle of morality in this case. Yeah, totally. And I think you got it on, you nailed it on the head when you said about party unity. The one striking thing, I think, from the Democratic nomination back in, it seems like forever ago, January and February. The one thing I think we all, as we watched on, when 
all of the prospective candidates were attacking Joe Biden, you're thinking the Democrats could very well go into this election, whoever came out on top, whether it was Sanders or Biden, a very divided party. And we know that divided parties do not win elections. And it's kind of, it's echoes throughout, doesn't it, that the Democrats are ditching this kind of division, they're ditching the petulant tactics, they're now going for professionalism on all fronts. And you kind of weigh that up against what the Republicans are doing, they're quite insular. And you spoke about prominent left-wing politicians coming to speak at the convention. I also find it quite striking that um, Republicans are speaking at the Democratic convention as well. It's not just this idea that Joe Biden is a broad church of Democrat voters or lean Democrat voters, but Republicans who feel politically homeless by the kind of the lurching to the extremes of Donald Trump at the moment, that maybe Joe Biden is the home for them. It could be kind of like we saw in 2019 over here to borrow Brexit vote, like we saw for some Liberal Democrats that perhaps Labour were too left wing. It's time to go to a more moderate party with us. And it kind of, like I say, it echoes in America that this is a really astute tactic. I think some Democrats might know that in the swing states, it's not going to be enough to say he's not Donald Trump. I think people need a bit more impetus. People are always going to be sceptical of Joe Biden, his age, perhaps his history in government. And maybe the, the thing that nudges them over the line is actually the Republican endorsements that Joe Biden is not just a broad church for the Democrats, but he's a broad church for the entirety of America. I think that that is really huge. Definitely. And of course, on the opening night of, of the convention, you had Ohio Governor John Kasich speak, kind of promoting the idea that Joe Biden should be the next president. On day two of the virtual convention, Cindy McCain was also speaking at the convention, although she didn't explicitly endorse Joe Biden, although you wouldn't kind of speak at the Democratic convention if you weren't dissatisfied with Donald Trump's running of the country. So, yeah, that is the theme that I got out of this. They are trying, the Democrats, to be something to everybody. They're trying to be the party that will represent the working class. They're trying to be the party that will represent young professionals. They're trying to be the party that will represent people from ethnic minority backgrounds. And they're also trying to be the party that seeks to represent white voters who previously voted for Donald Trump who they need to win back. And this is this is something, this is a rabbit hole that we often fall down in, a, in UK politics, is the criticism of the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, was the fact that it was targeted at predominantly white voters who previously voted for Donald Trump. It wasn't targeted at people who have provided the bedrock of the Democratic Party over recent weeks, months and decades. And people were upset about that. People were upset about the fact that it wasn't very left wing. It didn't really promote any left wing ideas. It was very much targeted at bringing people over to the party. The issue with that is that what is the point in preaching to the converted? We mm. saw that the Democrats can win the popular vote and still lose an election. It's happened numerous times, Hillary Clinton being the most recent example of that. So the Democrats had to go down this road. They had to bring in the likes of Kasich and C.D. McCain and try to win the voters back. And I don't think they did a terrible job because you still had these people from different parts of the party. You had Bernie Sanders speaking on night one of the convention. AOC made a very, very brief drop into the convention. And to be honest, I think she should have been given more of a role. 
But with everything, with whatever content you're producing, and it's important to remember that the Democratic Convention this year was essentially a TV series. It was content and it was targeted at a very, very specific group of people. You have to appeal to those people at kind of the expense of maybe annoying some of your bedrock voters. Absolutely. I think, like you said, it, it was it was like a TV series, but at the same time, we've seen Donald Trump rule America in the same manner that it's not enough to try and claim the moral high ground against your opponent. You kind of have to, at times, fight fire with fire. I think the Democrat machinery in the running of the convention was spot on. I think they, they've man- it was very stage managed, but at the same time, I think in these cases, in these conventions where usually you do get a bounce in every election in the popular vote, that this was managed perfectly. There was nothing that massively went wrong. There was nothing that caused major consternation. It was a kind of everyone knew their lines, everyone knew who to target, everyone knew who who they were appealing to. And when you have all of that amalgamate together, it, it's going to work. It's going to provide, I think, especially to first-time voters, I think they're not spoken about enough in elections in the swing states that inevitably could decide the election, that perhaps this kind of glossy convention-style politics, especially to first-time voters, it might drag them to the polls in a way that in previous years, you know, Hillary Clinton being coated in balloons might not. Definitely. And I think that brings us along nicely to the next quote. And now we're going to hear from former First Lady of the United States of America, Michelle Obama. Stating the simple fact that a black life matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. Because whenever we look to this White House for some leadership or consolation or any semblance of steadiness, what we get instead is chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy. Over the past four years, a lot of people have asked me, when others are going solo, does going high still really work? My answer, going high is the only thing that works. Because when we go low, when we use those same tactics of degrading and dehumanizing others, we just become part of the ugly noise that's drowning out everything else. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic Convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling You know I hate politics, but you also know that I care about this nation. You know how much I care about all of our children. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. 
if we have any hope of ending this chaos, we have got to vote for Joe Biden like our lives depend on it. A really heartfelt message there from Michelle Obama. Zach, what were your takeaway points from the clip we've just heard? Like I said at the start, I think it was probably the highlight of the convention. It, it was so heartfelt. It was so passionate. And again, I think they've kind of learned from the last campaign that it's not about the names that are supporting the Democrats. It's not about how many celebrities, how many people are going to be supporting them in their might. It's about the heartfelt personal appeal to the Democrats. And you saw how Michelle Obama completely divorced herself from her political role or political affiliation for the Democrats, you know, she's not just the first lady, she's a black woman in America. She wants this message amplified across the country that this like Donald Trump is not the right president for her. It's not the he's not the right president for America. And I thought that that was a really good again, the tone of the, the speech was perfect. I thought that the, the divorce, to, to someone as high up as uh, Michelle Obama to say it's not about where I stand in politics, it's what I feel, it's how I feel. Again, it's very effective and completely spot on. It is what it is, of course, Michelle Obama echoing what Donald Trump said about the number of Americans lost to the coronavirus. That's what stood out to me, that and the part where she talks about how much she cares for our children. And again, it's really important to recognise the discursive kind of tools that the Democrats are using. They're not talking about the country, they're talking about us, they're talking about people being united and coming together. And that that was the feeling I got from the speech from Michelle Obama. This was someone who, although she says that she doesn't like politics, um, this is a tangent, but I'm going to go there anyway. Someone who doesn't like politics is not such a good campaigner. When Michelle Obama says that she doesn't like politics, she doesn't like the dirty side of politics. She doesn't mm. like the backroom deals. She doesn't like kind of the politicking that goes on, but she absolutely does like politics in the sense that she's a fantastic campaigner and she absolutely knows what she's talking about. And again, what struck me with her speech was the way that she connected with her audience. And again, the audience for Michelle Obama realistically wasn't the people that the convention at large was seeking to attract. Michelle Obama was there on, on I believe, day one or day two of the convention to basically talk to Democratic supporters who previously kind of might not have turned out or might have faltered in their support for the Democrats and say, look, as part of kind of the Obama years and kind of the years that the Democrats often refer to as the golden days of the modern Democratic Party, we just need to bring this back. We need to go back to a familiar face. We need to go back to a steady hand. We need to get rid of Donald Trump. And... I think it's outside of the clip that we've included in the podcast. But one of the things she mentions is about having to have a plan on how you're going to vote, about being willing to sit outside of a polling station for hours to stand in line to wear comfy shoes, all these kind of kind of ideas. And what is so striking about that is the fact that for weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been talking, or not necessarily us, but the world at large has been talking about the need to register by mail, how there's going to be so, so many people registering by mail, and the coronavirus is going to dampen kind of in-person turnout. However, Michelle Obama's speech marked somewhat somewhat of a move away from that. She acknowledged the fact that in order for this election to run smoothly, people in their droves, potentially, are going to have to physically go to a voting station 
and cast the ballots. And if you only took one message away from this convention across all of the speakers, across all of the nights, I think the one thing that the Democrats wanted you to hear is that they need you to vote. They desperately mm. need people to turn out. And again, it was these kind of heartfelt messages, kind of with personal experience and trying to appeal to kind of the human side of politics, it, even in a way that you kind of disown the idea that this is politics in any sense of the word. And then you go about it that way. And I just think the Democrats, this was a nice touch from the Democrats having Michelle Obama speak because people like her. You look at her polling figures and they're unbelievably kind of positive. And I just feel like if someone is going to be able to cut through to the public in a way that they're not interested in politics, that could very well work because we've got to acknowledge as well that the vast majority of people who you'll meet in daily life say, yeah, I'm not interested in politics. And then five minutes later, they'll be having a debate about gay rights or a myriad of issues, whether it be economic or kind of the amount that they pay to get on the tube. Of course, people say that they're not interested in politics, but politics impacts everyone and everything. So Michelle Obama's message, I think, will have been heard loud and clear whether or not people agree with her or not because it's the kind of person who's able to cut through to the broader public absolutely on day two of the democratic national convention alexandria ocasio cortez was invited to nominate bernie sanders as her kind of candidate for president of the united states here is what the house of representatives member had to say in fidelity and gratitude to a mass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights in el espíritu del pueblo and out of a love for all people, I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for President of the United States of America. So, Zach, we just heard from AOC talking about how Bernie Sanders would have been her candidate for president. What did you make of the clip and kind of more broadly, where do you see AOC fitting into the party going forwards? I feel for her, in the way that she has basically died on this hill of going for the most left-wing candidate out of the Democratic nominees, that in 2024, because I think that many people do have this concern that Biden might just be a one-term president, that it, we could arrive in 2024 and Biden may even be unfit for the presidency, like mentally or something, or just physically not being able to be the president, that she might be part of the bigger... I don't see her being the president anytime soon. I don't see her being a nominee, but I see her being a very prominent figure in the policy-making machine of the Democratic Party going forward. I see her having a very influential role. We've seen her, you know, in all those clips on social media, of her taking down Mark Zuckerberg and and all you know, that kind of manner of, you know, Alexander... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being this kind of the populist arm of the Democratic Party that you could say that this is the person who can take on the big businesses, take on those millionaires who are not paying their way in this country, that perhaps going forward that she might be the the broadcasting arm, that you know, she will be the face of the Democratic left and the, the face eventually of the Democratic Party rather than being the figurehead of it. And I think you get that from the way that she talks the way that she is and especially in the way she nominated Bernie Sanders that I don't 
she doesn't see herself, I think, as the as the frontline candidate, but more as someone who is very close to the frontline. For sure. Um, I agree. I think AOC's role in the party going forwards is, well, basically, in this election, her job is to make sure that people who kind of agree with her policies turn out. That is the be-all and end-all. That's essentially what she needs to do. Because, and again, this is a debate that's been going on within the Democratic Party and within kind of left-wing parties around the world for a very, very long time, is that elections, this, so goes the argument, elections aren't won on the left. You don't win an election by winning left-wing voters. You win elections by winning people at the centre. That's kind of Down's theory of kind of how elections work. And of course, that's an interesting point insofar as Joe Biden has had various Republicans speak at the convention. He's had Bernie Sanders speak at the convention. And then you have AOC standing up and nominating Bernie Sanders as her candidate, which is interesting. And what I thought kind of stuck out to me is the fact that they gave Sanders' campaign this this final swan song. They said, yeah, this is all the things you achieved. You had a overwhelmingly positive impact on, on the campaign at large. And now we're passing on the baton to someone else who might be able to, to appeal to people right of centre economically, who might be able to appeal to potentially lean Republican voters. And that was interesting. And one of the things that the Democrats were criticised for was for not having enough people from the left speak at the convention, for not having enough people from minority backgrounds speak at the convention. And I think that's a fair criticism. And one of the things that stood out to me as well is... AOC did kind of an Instagram question and answer session and one one of the people asked kind of these people on the left have a big enough role at the convention and she gave a really really interesting answer she basically said that had had Sanders won had someone on the left won the convention would look very different they would have played to a different audience they would have had different speakers and then she said but that that criticism of course it was criticism that criticism doesn't need to be a fight it's just the acknowledgement that kind of this is my view this is what i would have done and we can still move forward together and i think there really is such a strong sense of party unity at that point where kind of the left wing of the party the central wing of the party are coming together and saying no we just need to get this done this isn't about kind of ideological purity not even in the slightest in this election it's simply about winning and i think kind of as student of politics that's quite refreshing to see because so often you see and especially with left-wing parties both in europe and around the world you have this sense of looking for ideological purity for looking for policies that appeal to your base and to go down a football analogy if this election was a central defender it's it's not um a david louis style performance we're looking mm-hmm. for james collins getting the ball on the deck and pumping it 50 yards over the top for someone to chase. This is about simply beating Donald Trump. And I think regardless of AOC's role in this convention, going forward, you'll have a massive role in kind of the heart of the party. Absolutely. And as well, considering um, the candidates that are associated with the Republican nomination for the next election, if Trump doesn't win, it kind of reminds me of how the Conservatives were in, in 1997, 2000, 2005, when there was no really prominent Conservative that could probably take them to victory. 
the same thing could happen with the Republicans, where whoever the Democrats have, they'll probably beat the Republicans on the face of you're either going to have a really successful president in Joe Biden, or you're going to have a very successful vocal voice in the Democrat Party, backed by your AOCs, etc. And I think the Democrats know that, that 2024 is a huge opportunity to win the election, whatever, whatever happens. And I think they're beginning to put in place the kind of voices and policies and the machinery for a long-term American strategy, which is very astute and I think is the right thing to do for a, for a party that wants to win. Because I think if you can win this election, you probably win the 2024 one, considering the, the gravity of the situation so it's right ahead. And the Democrats need to think long-term. And that kind of blend of Joe Biden being the kind of the probable one-term candidate, but with two-term, three-term policies, I think it's a perfect blend and it could be effective when Americans go to the polls. I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. How long until Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a senator? Because, of course, New York at the moment has Chuck Schumer and Kirsten... Gilliard, I believe, as the senators at the moment. Do you think that kind of AOC is next in line to potentially run in that area? Absolutely. I think it's that's the kind of the gra- her gravity at the moment is that the closer she gets into the policy making machine, I think the higher up she has to go. I think you could only have such an effect and such an influence as just the representative. I think when she makes that step up into being a senator she'll become a, a the front a front page the poster girl of of the democrat party i think the democrats know that and the democrats need that and i think as we go forward however long that takes that will i think eventually happen and once she's a senator like like we've just said that's when you kind of long-term democratic policies kind of get transmitted and amplified and this is this is a politician who is genuinely popular with people and kind of with outlets and is covered in outlets that typically don't cover politics and aren't really interested in that thing. And if you look at it from kind of a broader perspective, AOC is someone who is tackling kind of barriers in politics, but she's also breaking down walls to politicians as well, because she's prominent in ways that kind of her predecessors certainly weren't. And that's a tool that will be so, so useful for the Democrats going forward. And again, kind of on the other hand, you have Michelle Obama's podcast on Spotify, which I've subscribed to, but I've still not actually listened to. Um, And you just have these figures on the left of American politics kind of breaking through into the mainstream and kind of beyond politics, which is really interesting to see because that hasn't really happened on the right, not with politicians anyway. You have right-wing figures who are incredibly popular online, the likes of kind of Ben Shapiro, to name just one example. (laughs) Um, yeah, but I, I find that quite interesting as kind of kind of somewhat of a tangent, but something that I think could be impactful going forward, because if the Democrats can reach people through untraditional means or <laughs> untraditional means through kind of newer means, that could prove so important in elections going forwards. Zach, yeah. any any final thoughts on AOC for today? Uh, I, th- I think you've covered it there. I think completely echo what you're saying i think and uh, her, her age is is going to be a very important factor and the democrats know that they can't i think in our politics we can become a bit ageist that i think the older you are that the less 
in terms of being the face of a campaign and the face of policies doesn't kind of resonate with people. I think, again, I love making the parallels to British politics. You look at, for example, in 1997 with Tony Blair, a very young candidate, a very I think it was the youngest ever prime minister since the, the Lord Liverpool. It's it, again, the youngest prime minister in, in modern time. And Labour made that campaign about Blair being new Labour, new Britain, you know, new politics and a new face. And that kind of thing will resonate in American politics because American politics definitely pays more attention to style rather than substance, right? And again, I think she'll be a massive asset going forward. Maybe not in 2020 because I think it's too early and we know that she is at the moment will be tarred with the radical left label. But I think in in the imminent years to come, being the young face of, of the Democrats, is both a good bet and I think uh, an eventual outcome. And on that note, we're going to move over to Kamala Harris, potential next Vice President of the United States, talking about the requirement for voters to turn out on Election Day. Hey everybody, it's me, Kamala. So before I go on stage later tonight, I want to talk about the importance of voting. I know many of you plan to vote this year, but amidst the excitement and enthusiasm for this election, you've also heard about obstacles and misinformation and folks making it harder for you to cast your ballot. So I think we need to ask ourselves, why don't they want us to vote? Why is there so much effort to silence our voices? And the answer is because when we vote, things change. When we vote, things get better. When we vote, we address the need for all people to be treated with dignity and respect in our country. So, Zach, we've heard from Kamala Harris for the first time today. What did you make of her message about voter turnout? I think it's a serious point. And it, like we said about the Democratic Convention as a whole, that they are really, really prioritising voter turnout above everything. Michelle Obama talking about sitting outside the polling queues. Kamala Harris actually going in on the Republicans for the voter suppression, apparently. Voter suppression. And it kind of resonates with the idea that this is a kind of populist campaign that, you know, it's you, the people that decide this election. You know, this election is about you. You are voting. You are doing this. That kind of, I like that kind of campaign that it gives self-determination back to the people because we saw how Donald Trump won in 2016. He spoke about the establishment winning this election for Hillary Clinton, that the only way to fight back against the establishment was to vote Republican. And you now have Kamala Harris, Michelle Obama, Joe Biden himself. They're talking about it's you, know, you are voting. You can vote Donald Trump out on November 3rd. You have to fight for your vote. And the only way you fight for your vote is by getting in early, mailing in early or turning up early, you know, that kind of thing. So I think... We know the dividing lines between the Democrats and the Republicans on turnout. Uh, we know that it's going to be bitterly contested and Kamala Harris is doing the right thing by encouraging people to vote. Definitely. And this was, this was for me, the main scene, as I've said from the whole convention, this idea that the Democrats were pushing this narrative about voting. And one of the lines of analysis that I've seen kind of repeated on a couple of podcasts I've listened to, but also some of the TV coverage I've seen, is that kind of, well, this could backfire on Trump, all the things that he's talking about with the post service, with mail-in ballots, so on and so forth. The idea that kind of 
the machinery of kind of American democracy to such an extent, you're just going to encourage, quote unquote, the wrong people to vote. You're going to encourage Democrats to vote and you're going to struggle as a result. And I find that interesting as well, because this could all backfire on Donald Trump. He started the narrative about the frailty of American democracy to kind of aversion and to um, fraud and things like this. But of course, that that could totally work the other way, and it could see that people come out and vote who the president couldn't count on the support in the first place. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And the thing that struck me with this clip about, or clip from Kamala Harris rather, was the fact that it was kind of added on before the start of day three of the convention. So what happened is they played this before the title credits of day three of the Democratic National Convention, and then they went into the main show. And it was like this kind of very relaxed, very personal message. It was like, hi, I'm Kamala. Um, Make sure you vote in November. And firstly, what I find interesting was, number one, the familiarity. So it was like first name terms, kind of trying to create that friendly image. And this is kind of a theme of the election as well. You've got kind of Joe Biden, who's what, Uncle Joe, kind of this friendly kind of paternalistic figure then you've got Kamala who's your friend from kind of down the pub and you go bowling together and kind of you're all good pals and it's all great fun and like that's the front that I feel the Democrats are trying to go out with it's all kind of very friendly and very like oh come and join us we're nice to each other we'll work together and then they're juxtaposing their side with what the Republicans have got going on at the moment and again we've said it before and we'll say it again turnout is going to be one of the major major issues at this election. Yeah, and as well that what kind of complicates the issues is Donald Trump, for example, if he's cast so much doubt into the result before it's happened that it's going to be a really, I'd say, dreadful aftermath that if Donald Trump wins, will the Democrats say, hang on a minute, this vote was rigged and that they're, they're after falling into the Donald Trump trap of looking like the bitter loser who can't take the result and immediately will be the ones that be against democracy or will if Donald Trump's to win uh, if uh, Donald Trump's to lose sorry then how would would, uh, Donald Trump react to that would it go to the courts for example and I think that's the one thing the Democrats didn't talk about when it comes to voters is actually the consequences of the voter turnout that's the one thing I think Kamala Harris and co didn't really get into which you can kind of understand because you do not want to be labeled as the one being threatening to take democracy into the courts but at the same time i feel like there are going to be some voters still in swing states who may be 50 50 still voting because some of them might not see it some might not be able to or some don't want to and if the consequences of voter fraud or perhaps even just not voting at all I think it's not been touched upon and it's a risky approach because I feel like at the moment it kind of sounds like an empty threat or if you don't vote Trump will win but at the same time what if Trump does win and the Democrats have not reacted to that yet about the consequences of what the Democrats would do if it turns out that there has been mass voter suppression. Someone who of course has experienced the acute kind of anguish of losing an election to Donald Trump is Hillary Clinton, here is what she had to say about the upcoming November general election. The morning after the last election, I said, 
we owe Donald Trump an open mind and the chance to lead. I meant it. That would have been a good thing for America and the world. I wish Donald Trump knew how to be a president because America needs a president right now. For four years, people have told me, I didn't realize how dangerous he was. I wish I could do it all over or worse. I should have voted. Look, this can't be another woulda, coulda, shoulda election. But let's set our sights higher than getting one man out of the White House. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to give us so much to vote for. And don't forget, Joe and Kamala can win by 3 million votes and still lose. Take it from me. So we need numbers overwhelming so Trump can't sneak or steal his way to victory. Tonight, I'm thinking of the girls and boys who see themselves in America's future because of Kamala Harris, a black woman, the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants and our nominee for vice president. This is our country's story, breaking down barriers and expanding the circle of possibility. And to the young people watching, don't give up on America. Despite our flaws and problems, we've come so far. We can still be a more just, equal country with opportunities previous generations could never have imagined. There's a lot of heartbreak in America now. And the truth is many things were broken before the pandemic. But as the saying goes, the world breaks everyone and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. That's Joe Biden. Trust me, I've been there, says Hillary Clinton on losing to Donald Trump. Did you think that this speech from Hillary Clinton made or will make any impact on the election going forwards? I feel it's going to make more of an impact inside the Democrat Party rather than outside. Because we've always seen that Hillary Clinton's been a rather a Marmite character in, in US politics, you know, at the height of her popularity in the 90s to the depths of her unpopularity in 2016. So I think this is more of a rallying call to the Democrat strategy rather than to the people at large, because I feel like she's such a divisive character among Americans that for those, I don't know, it's like this running theme that we've had in this episode in particular about preaching to the converted, I feel like you know, strong Democrat voters are not, not going to be inspired to vote by Hillary Clinton because they voted already. Whereas I feel like in the campaign, Hillary Clinton's going to be saying, I think, a lot. They're going to wheel her out a lot to say, look, we need to go and vote. Because as she, as she said, you know, she lost by, she won by three million popular votes, yet still lost. So I feel it's more of a reminder to the Democrats that the strategy must be to go to your Pennsylvanias, to your Wisconsins, to your Floridas, to say, if you vote Democrat or if you've always thought about voting Democrat but never have, this is the time to vote because... These are the states that matter. And every state, of course, matters. America does matter. But at the same time, the 13 swing states that are going to decide this election matter the most. And if people do not turn out and vote Democrat, it just incentivizes the Republicans even more to win. Hillary Clinton is the ghost of Christmas past. It's like, kind of, this is what we don't want to happen. We don't want to have, kind of, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris here in four years time talking about how we lost in Pennsylvania, how we lost in these swing states and how we lost to someone so dreadful like Donald Trump. 
Um, that was her role, and I think she played it quite well. What I, what I found quite striking about Hillary Clinton's intervention was the fact that she she just sat there and kind of it was a I told you so moment, wasn't it? It was very even yeah. though she was the person who lost. It was like, well, I I wanted Donald Trump to do well once he was elected, even though that I said all these things about how he was going to be the worst president ever and so on and so forth, how he was a crook, although that's, a, <laughs> that's what Trump said about Clinton. Um, but the idea was Clinton, for the good of the country, wanted Donald Trump to do well. And in her eyes, in the eyes of Democrats across the country, Donald Trump has certainly not done well. And the message she was trying to get across was simply, well, Maybe we should listen to the warnings next time. Maybe Donald Trump is the big bad man that we portrayed him to be. And perhaps we should stop with the experiment of kind of having the 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 star of The Apprentice running the country. Um, and I think I think it was quite effective messaging because it just cut through for me. It was like, OK, this is what losing looks like. Let's not do this again. Oh, absolutely. But also, I think at the same time, have that kind of I told you so and that kind of message it can kind of turn people off of those things at the same time because it it, it does for like the Brexit referendum for example those who were, the Remain campaign were putting this kind of the sneering attitude of well you know you kind of deserved it if you didn't really turn out and voted for us and that that kind of message so at the same time as Clinton obviously cutting through in that way some people might read it as well, hang on a minute, she's basically telling us that we're responsible for the Trump presidency. And although that might be true, at the same time, people might not want to hear that and think, well, why would I vote for someone who doesn't really treat my vote with respect rather than they just take it for granted? So, again, I think it just shows you the, the ambivalence between Hillary Clinton and any electric campaign that I feel she will be an important voice in the, in the strategy in the campaign, but maybe she'd be put to the back burner because people might have these prejudged views of her. And if she was to be given a huge platform in this campaign, it might detriment the Democrats rather than help them. Yeah, I think Hillary Clinton shouldn't say too much. I think I think this is probably the limit of the amount of Hillary Clinton that we need in kind of the election going forwards, because Ultimately, the voters rejected her last time and having to come back is going to make her a very, very easy target for the Trump campaign. And again, we see it in British politics every single time that Tony Blair says anything on television. You have an absolute scurry of people on Twitter just saying, look, he's a war criminal. He did this. He did that. Look at kind of the mess that he left hospitals in. Look at kind of the finance schemes. Look at the global financial crisis, all this kind of stuff. And regardless of whether or not the thing that Tony Blair says makes any sense, of, that gets lost in the noise because people just say, no, we know what we think about Tony Blair. He's a war criminal. He did this in Iraq. We're past that. And again, the same applies to Hillary Clinton. People in America rejected Hillary Clinton. She was part of the swamp that needed to be drained and thus probably shouldn't play a prominent role going forwards. However, I think she's a very, very potent tool to be used within the Democratic Party because one look at Hillary Clinton should remind anyone on the left of the party who's maybe thinking, oh, do I vote? Do I vote for the Greens? Well, no, we have to vote for the Democratic Party, otherwise we could end up with Trump again. I think, again, it's this message about ideological purity. It's like, well, 
you can have your priority, but if you want that, Trump is going to win. And I think Clinton there was Clinton was there to scare Democrats. She was there very much to ensure party discipline, and I think she probably played her role exceptionally well. Absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. It's yeah. it, it's really interesting with Clinton as well because I think she seemed to enjoy the role. I really the, the vibe that I got from the speech was like, yeah, this is the situation that I'm in. I'm going to be known as the person who lost to Donald Trump. Now let's own it and let's kind of turn it around and put it to use in a more positive sense. And of course, someone who knows about winning presidential elections, Barack Obama also spoke during day three of the convention. Here is what he had to say. As you've seen by now, this isn't a normal convention. It's not a normal time. So tonight I want to talk as plainly as I can about the stakes in this election. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. So Zach, what did you make of Barack Obama's comments at the Democratic National Convention. I felt that it played into definitely the message of probably what the Democrats will go with as the one that will cut through the most is about competence and fitness for office. And they will detract from physical fitness to whether or not someone's presidential enough. And you saw that Barack Obama, as a president himself, that that idea, the same thing with Hillary Clinton, I know how it works. I have been there. I've been with the victories, I've been with the losses, and for Barack Obama to come out and say, look, this guy is not fit for president, presidential office at all, look at the decisions he's making, look at what how he's running the country, it was very interesting, he didn't talk about his own record, which I thought was really good, because I think we saw that in the last campaign that Donald Trump basically attacked the Obama administration 
completely all the time. It was a relentless attack on the Obama administration. And Obama kind of think very smartly didn't talk about, well, look what we've done in office. He just kept doing what Trump was doing to him, which is look at how the country's being run. Do you really think this is how things should be? And combining that kind of outrage at how presidential office has been denigrated with the idea that any efforts to change it is being suppressed and kind of amalgamating that into this plea, this heartfelt plea, I may add, to kind of go out and vote because this is the chance, this is your chance to show that, look, Joe Biden might have his faults, but look, Donald Trump is not fit for office in any manner. And I thought that was really smart. I agree. I think the line of attack against Donald Trump going forward to the Democrats has to simply be, look, Donald Trump, as Michelle Obama kind of said in, in day one of the convention, isn't fit for office, is not fit to hold the office of the presidency, and we should therefore get rid of him. I think that's the message that the Democrats will be looking to use going forwards. And again, I think Barack Obama played a similar role to Hillary Clinton in a way. It was very much not about his achievements or what kind of he did in kind of being this record-breaking president and kind of history-making president. The idea was, look, kind of, we achieve so much in office, and that goes unspoken in the speech. But what happened after I left office is this, and this happened because we got complacent. We thought, no, Donald Trump can't win, and he did. And now we need to ready the ship. Now we need to steady the ship. We need to turn in the opposite direction, and we need to look to someone who is essentially competent. And again, competency isn't a sexy issue in politics. It's not something that gets the heart racing. It's not something that you focus on in big kind of soapbox speeches. Um, And it's why lots of politicians are viewed kind of not in glowing terms during their time in public life. And then afterwards, once they're gone, people look back and go, ah, yeah, well, X, Y, and Z was actually quite good at their job. And I think that's the pitch the Democrats are trying to make. And that is a risk, because if you're Mm. basing your electoral hopes on saying, well, Joe Biden is competent, he'll be able to do the job. Likewise, Kamala Harris is competent, she'll be able to do the job. I mean, if that's the height of kind of your sell to the American public, is it something that's going to encourage them to turn out if they're not that fast, whether they win or not? I completely agree. I think with the competence issue, I think that's more of a long-term strategy that kind of evolves over time. And the way that American politics works in terms in terms of campaigning and such is so much different to British politics. You're seeing at the moment in Britain, Labour going for this line that Boris Johnson is incompetent. And they know, look, we're four years away from an election. This kind of thing builds up with issues after issue. Whereas in America, it's where the campaign's more compressed and kind of you don't really know who's going to be running for president until like four months, five months before the election. It's a kind of definitely a real risk in their strategy because there's only so much you can say about competence that prejudges that, that builds up the view of the, of the typical voter. I feel like over time, a voter can see whether or not their figurehead or their government is incompetent or not. Whereas where it's so close to election day, I feel like you're not going to change too many people's opinions on whether or not Donald Trump is competent or not. People are either going to think he's the right person for America as a president or he's not, whereas there are plenty of other attacking lines you can do. I think we saw this with the impeachment proceedings, that it became way too partisan, that many people kind of ignored the proceedings because it was kind of this 
catfight as well. Donald Trump's bad versus all Donald Trump can't be that bad. So, like, yeah, completely agree. I think it's a risky strategy. I don't think it's the 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 frontline issue. I think the Democrats can go on. I think it's a good attack line, but at the same time, I do feel like it, it's way too late in the campaign to just plant a long term strategy into a short in a short period of time. Yeah, that that's an interesting point as well with the competency issue because there will be people who look at Donald Trump and say, yeah, well, he's actually done some of the things I quite like. I quite like the fact that he's clamped down on China. I quite like the fact that he's not had an exceptionally aggressive line against Russia. I quite like the fact that he's attempted to build the wall and limited immigration and all of these things. And of course, that's a group of people who the Democrats are not going to win over in this election. And they need to have some kind of compelling message to the people who are potentially prone to swing in between one party and the other. And I think in order to do that, you either have to have a really effective way of saying, look, the Donald Trump experiment cannot continue, or you need to have a really compelling way of saying, look, Joe Biden is the person we need in the Oval Office. And my concern going forward, and I say concern because it it won't be a shock to anyone that I hope Donald Trump loses the election. The concern that I have is that the Democrats haven't built a compelling argument for yet. They've built a very, very damaging case against Donald Trump that I don't even think in the convention they they made a particularly kind of alluring pitch about why they were so great, apart from the fact that they're not Trump. And it's very much, look, you've got Trump or you've got the people who aren't Trump. And again, that will convince lots of people. But is it enough to push them over the line in swing states such as Florida and Pennsylvania, for example? Yeah, completely. I think they know they're going to win the popular vote. If this is not the matter of whether or not a few people in Texas decide to switch to the Democrats or not, I feel like, again, you can only go so far by being really gloomy about your opponent. And straight away, the, the takeaway from the Republicans were, look how gloomy the Democrats are being. They're, you know, they're down talking America, they're down talking everything. And it's that kind of, that, that kind of thing cuts through that people might go, hang on a minute, yeah. They are being really gloomy about America, but what are they offering in return? And that kind of thing gets lost in translation when you go like really head on in a campaign against your opponent, because it is only for so long you can say, yeah, no, look, they've ruined the country. They've done this, they've done that. And I think that's the one criticism I had of the convention, that we didn't hear too much about their vision for the future, their complete vision for the future, why they are a more appealing vote than a Donald Trump second term and look it's very early in the campaign we there's not even been a debate yet in terms of whether or not the Democrats are going to be appealing or not but as we know conventions are historic for selling yourself to the American people this is why we should be president this is why we should be in power and I feel like it's the same thing in the Democratic nominations in the debates that most of the campaign was just cheap one-liners against Donald Trump. That yeah, they sound quite good. They're going to be really good uh, sound bites. But at the same time, people don't want sound bites. They know people don't like Donald Trump. They know that Donald Trump's bankrupted a couple of businesses, like he's bankrupted America, that kind of thing. They want to see what you're going to do about it. And if they can't offer a concrete pitch for that, it's going to really harm them. For sure, and I think this is probably where the pitch side of the DNC comes in. So next up on the podcast, we're going to hear 
from both Kamala Harris as she accepts the nomination as vice president. And we're also going to hear Joe Biden accept the nomination as potential president of the United States. So here we go with Harris and Biden. I accept your nomination for vice president of the United States of America. I do so committed to the values she taught me, to the word that teaches me to walk by faith and not by sight, and to a vision passed on through generations of Americans, one that Joe Biden shares, a vision of our nation as a beloved community where all are welcome, no matter what we look like, no matter where we come from or who we love. A country where we may not agree on every detail, but we are united by the fundamental belief that every human being is of infinite worth, deserving of compassion, dignity, and respect. A country where we look out for one another, where we rise and fall as one, where we face our challenges and celebrate our triumphs together. In this election, we have a chance to change the course of history. And years from now, this moment will have passed and our children and our grandchildren will look in our eyes and they're gonna ask us, where were you? when the stakes were so high. They will ask us, what was it like? And we will tell them. We will tell them not just how we felt. We will tell them what we did. Give people light and they will find the way. Give people light. Those are words for our time. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. Make no mistake, United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. We'll choose hope over fear, facts over fiction, fairness over privilege. I'm a proud Democrat, and I'll be proud to carry the banner of our party into the general election. So it's with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. So now we've heard from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, both of them accepting, of course, the positions on the Democrats ticket in 2020. What did you make of the remarks, Zach? I felt Biden's was actually, it surpassed my expectations. I think that the Democrats definitely picked up on this message, I think, not just on social media, but in general, that Joe Biden sounds like a tired candidate, that his age is an issue, that you know, whatever he says, it's not that inspiring. And yet he come out with a very energetic speech. 
a, a speech I think that that was designed to inspire the generations that to, to reach out to people that feel downtrodden by this uh, pandemic, downtrodden by the last four years of a Trump administration, but also to those who don't who are very sceptical, not just of Biden, but of politics itself, that no matter who they vote for, they get the same outcome of always being screwed over for the next man. And I felt that the whole the dichotomy of light and darkness and the kind of hope and fear and that kind of thing is, we see that in winning campaigns. And that's why I think the Democrats have picked up upon that if they have to be the positive party. And we've already you know, said about if the Democrats keep going on about being gloomy about the other candidate, they're not going to go quite far. I think in this this speech by Joe Biden kind of tuned into the to the places where I think they needed to fix up in terms of their campaign, but also in general that they have to offer hope, they have to offer something to the American people to inspire them to vote. Because again, you only go by so far of getting your converted voters already through the door. It's about getting to these people. Hang on a minute, this guy isn't what people are portraying him out to be as some you know, tired, senile person. That this is a guy who who delivers from the heart, who speaks of his passion and is backed up by Kamala Harris, who is equally inspiring as well. And again, it's about this. If these Democrats are framed this to be the American dream, which I think if you look at everyone in the Democratic campaign, you know, your Cory Bookers and also your Kamala Harris's, it's that kind of all-reaching, all-singing, all-dancing campaign that they need to have. And it's a good start. and It's a solid speech. I agree. Um Joe Biden was much, much better than I expected him to be at the convention lots of the time. As you say, he's been portrayed as this tired candidate who hasn't really got much to offer. But I thought there was genuine dynamism in a lot of the moments where he was speaking. And again, another really poignant moment from the convention was when Joe Biden was talking about um, meeting George Floyd's children. And he was talking about that and he, he was really convincing and... I honestly believe that he believed everything that he said kind of during that speech. And I think it's very powerful to have a politician who stands on the stage and has the ability to connect with people and the ability to show that he genuinely cares. And I think that is the main achievement of the convention. The fact that kind of we walk away, no one has any huge question marks about Joe Biden and people kind of look and go, yeah, he probably deserves his place on the ticket. And I think that is a big win for the Democrats because it could have so easily been the case that you walk away from the convention saying, oh dear, Joe Biden was a terrible pick. But that wasn't the case. Joe Biden did a good job. Kamala Harris is, I believe, very, very reliable, very dependable. She's once again proven her worth. But Joe Biden is probably the big winner from this convention simply because there wasn't any major mistakes. There wasn't anything kind of major to criticize the democrats about because it went pretty smoothly i think the backdrop helped as well the fact that there wasn't this huge room full of balloons and people celebrating kind of this that and the other was good for biden because mm. it meant that he didn't have to play to the room that's not his strength his strength is kind of talking in a quote-unquote presidential way and i think his final address very much had the feel of a white house address and i just feel like if you're going to have him in a setting where he looks presidential, he sounds presidential, and he sounds passionate about issues that he cares about, that works just fine. Of course, this is, as Barack Obama said, this is a very weird convention. Very, very odd. But the Democrats ultimately got their message across. And going forward, I think that's 
probably a net positive for the Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. Like we said, but I feel like the campaign with Hillary Clinton and that kind of that whole convention looked like a victory parade. And it was, you know, this kind of a bullish. Uh, it's inevitable. We know what's going to happen. And you contrast that with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the way that they speak, that they know that there's still a lot of work to do. The 2016 election probably does scar them to this day that, you know, they were too arrogant, the Democrats, in 2016 about, you know, they won't pick Donald Trump. So we know we've won. It's all about you know making sure there is no hitches. There's no, uh, you know, no one fluffs their lines. Whereas you see you have this very steely determination, this concentration to keep at the issues that they want to to speak with and also the passion that they have for the presidency i feel like with hillary clinton we have that kind of i know i'm gonna get it it's just waiting for it it's that kind of i know what i've got for christmas i just need to wait to christmas day to open it and i think people did tune into that to say well hang on a minute that don't take our vote for granted and joe biden's kind of grounding himself even in the democratic nominations he didn't take the nomination for granted he knew he'd get a much more serious challenge from bernie sanders than many people predicted and we're getting that same belief now. I mean, the average polls has Joe Biden on over 300 electoral votes. Yet, if you listen to his speeches, you listen to the Democratic nomination speech, you would not think that Joe Biden is miles and miles ahead in the polls, because I think he knows that the propensity of polls can change. And to have that kind of, we we are nearly there, we have to keep pushing, we have to really, really go at it like we've never gone at it before. We can't take any vote for granted, any state for granted. That kind of campaign, again, it's a winning campaign and it is fronted by a man who is associated with winning. And I did see some attacks from Republicans in particular that Joe Biden kind of copied his speech from years ago. But at the same time, the, the comeback on that would be that Joe Biden won with Barack Obama on that speech if people want to be really pedantic about it Joe Biden knows what it is and what it takes to win an election and I feel that that is priceless in the very early stages of the campaign. That's interesting as well because the Republican attacks on Biden kind of talking about previous speeches that he's made are a bit futile because it points to the idea that Biden could win and Biden has the potential to oversee a Democrat victory, both kind of in the White House, but also on Capitol Hill. And I just think the Republicans would be playing a very dangerous game just to dismiss Biden out of hand as kind of this left wing figure who's unable to do anything. And is just a puppet for kind of the left of the party. And then simultaneously talk about how Joe Biden is recycling his old material, because everybody knows that Joe Biden isn't a massive left winger. That's not what he is. And of course, that's something that Kamala Harris attacked Joe Biden for in the primaries. So the Republicans realistically can't have it both ways. If some semblance of kind of observable truth is upheld throughout this election, of course, that's a big if. Um, If it is upheld, the Republicans can't argue Joe Biden is this left wing lunatic who's going to result in the downfall of American capitalism and then also say Joe Biden is the same person from the 1990s who was kind of massively behind NAFTA and supportive of um, the Clinton administration who basically betrayed the Democrats working class roots they can't have it both ways they're either going to have to commit to the attack that Joe Biden is a massive leftist or they're going to have to commit to the angle just saying well 
Joe Biden is old and senile and won't be any good at the job and basically stick with Donald Trump. Here's the safe pair of hands. Absolutely. And but at the same time, I think we, we talk about the attack lines and the Democrats can easily say, well, how can it be a safe pair of hands when the economy is contracted by so much? People aren't getting back into schools. People are, There's still thousands and thousands of people dying of the coronavirus. So I feel like the, the Republicans are beginning to back themselves into a corner, not in the way that they did in 2016, but in a much worse way that they've become so insular that everything and everyone is an enemy. I feel the Democrats have focused on the enemy within and it's quite easy to attack Donald Trump in that way whereas Donald Trump is basically every everyone is, is an enemy you know China you know the China virus you know Joe Biden phony Kamala Harris you know, everyone's an enemy and in the end I think voters will get tired if you keep attacking everyone and everything and again it's it's that dichotomy I think will run through the campaign Definitely. This is very much a campaign of huge, huge divides between the two parties. You certainly can't kind of run with the idea kind of on an analytical level that there isn't a major difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. This election is going to be absolutely huge kind of with the course of American politics. And what I find quite interesting as well is that we heard from ordinary ordinary members of the public we heard from previous presidents we heard from people involved in previous administrations and we also heard from up-and-coming stars within the democratic party if you look at kind of the major speakers at this week's republican national convention there are lots of people with the surname trump and mm. um it points in a different direction so there's something a little bit more dynamic about the Democratic Convention than what we might see later this week with the Republicans. And I think that might point to an optimistic angle for the Democrats. It might kind of show, well, we've got this broader support in the core executive that we're proposing, whereas the Republicans still kind of have cold feet about Donald Trump. And again, one of the things that I think the Democrats should be going in on Trump for is the fact that Kellyanne Conway has left the White House or is leaving the White House at the end of this week. And it's very much like, well, if Donald Trump's main advisers aren't willing to stay on the ship until Election Day, why should the rest of the country? Exactly. And you're seeing a, a big migration of Republican figures kind of move away from the Republicans completely, that they, they feel they are politically homeless, they can't be represented by Donald Trump. And I think someone... There's a criticism actually made at the Democrat convention that it felt like the 96 campaign about, you know, a lot of uh, defectors and a lot of people would be backing their opponent. But at the same time, I don't think that's a bad thing. That just shows you that you are, as we've said in the podcast, the broad church of the country. And like you say, like if all most of the speakers are Trumps, it's not just preaching to the converted, but it's kind of being the angry little person that has their soapbox and is just waving their fists around at everyone. And that's no way to do a campaign. And I think you'll see the real stark contrast between how the Democrats have played their campaign and how the Republicans have played their campaign uh, convention. I think it's this week, isn't it? So basically in the next few days and coming weeks, you'll see that the Republican convention is completely different, both in tone and also how they are conveying their messages. One of the major differences between kind of the Republican convention that's upcoming and what we've seen with the Democrats is 
apparently um, reports are suggesting that Donald Trump is going to speak every single night of the oh. convention, which, of course, is very different to what they did with Joe Biden at the Democratic event. And that's interesting because the theme from the Democratic Party is this theme of unity, this theme of coming together. That is not the case with the Republicans. It's very much kind of populist. We're going to make America great again from the very center of government. We're going to use Trump as the figurehead and we're going to try and push this through. We're going to try and ram it through by hook or by crook. And I think that's an interesting distinction to have. And Zach, you speak about kind of soapbox soapbox politics. Now, the final clip of the show we're going to hear from Joe Biden as he rounds off day four, the final day of the Democratic National Convention. With passion and purpose, let us begin, you and I together, one nation, under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each other. For love is more powerful than hate, hope is more powerful than fear, and light is more powerful than dark. This is our moment, this is our mission. May history be able to say, that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight as love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. And this is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. I promise you. Thank you and may God bless you and may God protect our troops. So, Zach, that was kind of the final comments of the Democratic National Convention. What were your takeaways from that? I think he's, again, played into this kind of multifaceted group of people he needs to convince to come over. You saw how he was you know, talking about God and the troops and proud of our country. He knows those are the voters that will carry him into the White House. Those are the ones that will tip him over in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida. We talk about these states a lot because they are the crucial states that he needs to win. We know he's going to win, for example, Delaware, which is his state. And it's very interesting. It's a marked departure from Hillary Clinton's campaign, I think, that she didn't really talk about being proud of one's country because we know that being proud of one's country can be co-opted into this kind of quite nationalistic, imperialistic, quite right-wing campaign. But I think Joe Biden is pushing across this idea that you don't have to be massively right-wing, you don't have to be massively left-wing to be proud of your country. It it should be a right, you should be proud of your country. And his presidency will make Americans proud of their country. So I thought that was really effective. I think that that was the right thing to do, as well as talk about the troops. Donald Trump has always been talking about how he will you know, make America's greatest ever defence, you know, everyone paying their own way in the UN to make sure that their militaries are great and this idea of American pride, America first. But yeah, I think Joe Biden kind of made a minimalist kind of view of that, that yes, we should be supporting our troops wherever they are in the world, however they're doing, whatever they're doing. But at the same time saying that we need to make us proud of our country whenever they need, need to go overseas. And it's, it's kind of compassionate conservatism that dressed up in the kind of progressive policies as well. And it's that kind of great blend that, again, I think I've said it a lot now, it's part of a winning campaign. I agree. I think that's really compelling. And what I, what I, um, what struck me with this and the convention as large is that there were lots of references to God and lots of references to religion and lots of references to kind of patriotic love of America. 
And that's important going forward for the Democrats because they're, they're hoping to win over a constituency of voters that are religious and that do love their country and that believe that America is the best country in the world. So this isn't going to be your typical kind of left wing campaign where you're a little bit shy about talking about being patriotic and talking about kind of the good qualities of the country and kind of why you should be proud to be American. Because so often we see with left wing campaigns, people talk about kind of needing to make up for the mistakes that we've made in the past, whether it be kind of the long, long past, like colonial times and this kind of idea, or whether it be more recent mistakes with regards to the foreign policy. Um, this is going to be a campaign where they're looking to win over voters in the centre. And I think reclaiming religion from the Republicans could be very useful. And I think the issue that the Republicans have is that they can't really stake a meaningful claim over being this party of the religious because Donald Trump personally does not live by Christian values. Mm. And that's problematic. Yeah, completely. Like Donald Trump tries to sell himself as the evangelical candidate that, you know, he's made that connection. Do you remember at the protests he... What I thought was actually quite crass when he held a Bible in front of the church. Again, that's the kind of I don't know how to say it. That's the kind of superficial nature that Joe Biden has to compete against. And I feel that Joe Biden, by adding kind of power and depth to his words, is a stark contrast to Donald Trump only showing Christian values on the surface. Again, whether or not it will transform people's opinions of him, I don't know. But at the same time, it's that kind of the whole package the Democrats are trying to sell to voters. A lot of voters that probably would be turned off by Joe Biden, but that, again, resonate with his values, if not the person. And that's really powerful in a campaign that a lot of people might not be convinced by the candidate, but by the candidate's values, people might go, hang on a minute, I could be able to vote for this person, not because I like them, but what they're saying and what they're about is something I can actually resonate with. So I think going forward, Joe Biden's use of God and troops and that I think are really powerful and really effective. The convention for the Democrats, I think, was a success because the message was clear about turnout, about the dangers of re-electing Donald Trump, about the dangers of not getting Joe Biden into the White House. It was it was a convention defined by unity and the desire simply to win, not at any cost, but by doing what was necessary. And I think looking back, the biggest achievement of the convention was simply not messing it up completely. It was simply by kind of getting out without any major mistakes, kind of getting out ahead and potentially looking to stay there in the long run. Zach, do you have any kind of final thoughts or any kind of summary on your thoughts on the convention? I think my final thoughts are always going to be geared towards the polls. And at the moment, there's been no usual convention bounce. But at the same time, that's not a bad thing for Joe Biden. I think that this was before the campaign properly gets into gear. I feel like this was a point of maximum danger for Joe Biden, that if he was to somehow slip on his speech or not sell himself or sell himself short, that perhaps people, again, may be a bit turned off by, by that and not vote or not express a voting intention towards that. And we've not seen that. But the polls are still stabilising. They still they still put Biden, I think, on average, six to eight points in front. And 
Therefore, I think it's been a big, big success. They've sold their policies. They've got some really heartfelt messages out there. It's a tough act for the Republicans to follow and for Donald Trump to follow. And I think they've set the bar and set the tone for the campaign. I think when you judge by the criteria of an unusual election campaign, they've passed flying colours. For sure. And I think the interesting point of comparison will be how did the how did the Democrats do in comparison to the Republicans? Because if the Democratic Convention is better than the Republican Convention, that is a massive win. And what I would say as well is I think the Republican Convention will probably draw more views. It will probably generate more of a buzz. But the risk is higher for the Republicans because with that extra attention, with that extra buzz, you have the risk of kind of broadening the scope of your mistakes and kind of projecting it on a wider audience and perhaps this week could be the week where Donald Trump finally says something that really ends his political prospects I mean it's possible I don't think it will happen but it's certainly possible that Donald Trump could do something that just makes his voters go I don't really know if I want to vote for this guy anymore and I think the interesting thing with what the Republican Party have got going on now is it's not about kind of winning more Democrats over to the Republicans. It's it's about not losing voters and Mm. it's about turnout because as much as Donald Trump talks about kind of the perils of kind of fraudulent voting, it's also essential that Republicans turn out because people who voted for Trump in 2016, at least the vast majority of them, aren't going to be willing to switch over to the Democrats. So with that said, it's it's basically whether or not they turn out or not, that's the indicator of his support. And if they don't turn out, it's going to end in a Republican defeat. Exactly. I think when you get, when an election campaign goes on the defensive, I think that's the first sign of a losing campaign. I've never, I don't think in the history of politics you know, and elections, you've seen a defensive campaign where you're defending what you have rather than going for gains actually ends up in a positive result. I agree. I honestly agree. Um, A question that I asked you to finish off the show a couple of weeks ago, Zach, was on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will win the election in November? I believe last time I said seven. I'm going to put that up to eight. Again, it's kind of I'm tuning with with their with their campaigns at the moment is they've got everything they have to win. They've got probably the momentum with them they've got the policies with them they've got the good the good uh, efficiency of their machine going for them but again it's about hammering it home across the entire campaign i'm relatively confident they'll win i think my nail cast has joe Biden. i think remaining at 301 electoral college votes but at the same time you can never discount donald trump and the republicans after the 2016 nightmare for them so I think 8 out of 10 would be a sensible place to put them. I'm staying where I already was. I think I was 7.5 and I'm still 7.5. I think the more important thing, the most important thing kind of over the next couple of weeks is what happens with the Republicans. Because if this turns out to be a mess and if it's a case where the president does speak every day and continues to kind of go off the rails a little bit, it could work in the Democrats' favour. And I just think... The the strategy that the Democrats are employing is one of, well, we might not have to win the election because Donald Trump might just lose it. 
And I think if we're looking along that line, it could be very much the course of the Republican Party that determines the outcome rather than anything that the Democrats could say. I honestly believe that the Democrats could sit there and not say anything for the next three months and potentially still win the election. I honestly believe the Republicans could find a way to really disillusion a large section of their voters. And that is a huge risk going forward, especially as they continue to dominate the news cycles. I think that just about rounds up episode 11 of the Midfield Politics podcast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Midfield Politic and we'd be delighted to have you over there. We recently did a thread on some of Sean Bailey's policies with regard to the London mayoral election. My name has been Luke James. As always, I've been joined by Zach Green across the dispatch box. And until next time, stay safe and keep voting.